Okay. So uh, let's get right into it. So last week, um, we looked at uh, two passages in Genesis. We looked at Genesis chapter 6, which uh, raises a couple of issues, the identity of the Nephilim and also the identity of the sons of God, the people or individuals called the sons of God, daughters of men, um, what was going on with regard to them having offspring. And so we looked at a couple of different interpretive options, and then uh, went through the pluses and minuses of each view, and then suggested a view uh, that I felt comfortable with. And then the second passage was the Genesis 32 text. Uh, someone submitted that as well, and that related to who uh, uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, was uh, wrestling with. And um, we uh, determined that that was, in fact, uh, in all likelihood, an angel of God who was referred to as God in the text, but by virtue of the fact that the angel of the Lord represents God, uh, Hosea seems, if we're reading Hosea properly, seems to tell us that the God that uh, Jacob, also later known as um, uh, Israel, was wrestling with was, in fact, his, an angel representing God. So tonight we're going to, uh, we're still in the Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch is a uh, reference to the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. And we're going to look at a couple of passages from Exodus tonight. And um, some of the passages, I think I have, I, I'm, I'm prepared to do about five or six. We'll, just, we'll see how far we get. But um, some of the passages tonight, uh, you'll notice, start to overlap each other a little bit from different books of the Bible, but some of the themes or issues that are raised in one passage will help us to move much more quickly through another passage because it raises similar kinds of issues, okay? So um, you can turn to uh, Exodus 4 to get us going, and uh, we're going to look at verses 24 to 26. So Exodus 4. Exodus 4. Uh, 24 to 26. So Exodus um, is the second book of the Bible. And um, the word Exodus is actually uh, kind of a neat word. Ex means out of and odos means out, or, or sorry, the road or the way. So the word that we use, Exodus, is, is loosely translated the road out which is kind of appropriate considering they are on their way out of Egypt at the beginning of the um, text. So this is the English word for it. It's not the word that the Hebrews use, but uh, it is the, the, the English word for it. And um, so the background Exodus, and I, and I, I know I, I probably should do like a little bit of a, an intro to every text because some of you may, may not have read all of the Bible yet or certain books of the Bible may be a little... Um, less clear to you. So essentially, Exodus is the account of God moving in an expanding nation, the nation of Israel, while they're in captivity in Egypt to bring them out to the promised land. And it's kind of a lengthy affair. So there's the beginning is the birth of Moses and all the events surrounding his birth and his, uh, the fact that he, his life was almost taken through um, the actions of the Pharaoh. And uh, he grows up in another location, he grows up in the Pharaoh's palace, later moves to Midian for 40 years, comes back and is in the process of uh, um, basically um, 
redeeming the people of God from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, so the picture is he's gone to Midian. He has married uh, a woman by now. Her name is Zipporah or Zipporah. And um, she is the daughter of a Midianite. So the Midianites, like the Moabites and the Ammonites, were like cousin nations to, to the Israelis. But um, while Jethro, her father, is portrayed as a wise, God-fearing man, their, their knowledge of God would have been somewhat limited. So we're assuming, for instance, that Zipporah probably did not grow up in a family that practiced the rite of circumcision. The rite of circumcision was given to the Jewish people, whereby the foreskin of the penis was removed. And this was uh, a physical mark uh, of uh, entry into the, the, uh, uh, the old covenant that God had made with them. Now, uh, a lot of people have also looked at the Old Testament laws and talked about their medical benefits. I mean, many people today would say it's neither here nor there whether or not you are circumcised. But... Uh, it would be difficult to argue that wouldn't have been a benefit in the ancient world where the ability to clean oneself and being out in a dusty environment wearing robes wouldn't have led to various infections. So many people have also noted that as with the dietary laws that were given to the Jewish people, that those dietary laws and many of the rituals that they participated in also had health benefits given the culture, given the circumstances, given the time that they were in. So Moses then is uh, on his way in response to God's command back to Egypt, and he is uh, prepared to be God's man, God's representative. And along the way, we're in Exodus 4, it says, uh, at a lodging place on the way, uh, the Lord met him. Now, you should underline or note the prepositions in the text, him, and sought to put him to death. Then uh, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So she let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So kudos to whoever uh, submitted that passage because it is admittedly a little bit of a difficult passage. And it's weird. Okay, it's just weird. Now, what in fact makes this passage confusing, especially for interpreters, commentators, is the uh, imprecision, shall we say, surrounding the use of the word him. So if we were to take a straw poll here and say, uh, who does the him refer to? Some of you might say, well, isn't that Moses? And others might put up their hand and say, but it doesn't say Moses. Others might say, well, it refers to uh, Moses' son, Gershom. Or it could refer to his second son, Eleazar. So there's a little bit of confusion as to who the him is. Like, who, who is God getting mad at? And who is he about to put to death? Is he about to put Moses to death because Moses didn't properly circumcise his oldest son? Or was this the second son born later that maybe Moses hadn't got around to circumcising? Or, uh, you know, who, who's the him here? So it can be confusing. 
Now, the word um, Moses is uh, used in verse 25. You'll notice, and touched Moses' feet. And this is in the English Standard Version. But in fact, um, that's an interpretation on behalf of the translator. Even there, it just says him. In the Hebrew, it only says him. So literally, the Lord met him, sought to put him to death. Zippor takes a knife, Zippor takes a knife cuts off the foreskin, and touched him, his feet, and said. Now, she's obviously speaking now to Moses because she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she touched Moses' feet with the foreskin. It could mean she touched one of the son's feet with the foreskin and then went on to say, you, Moses being present, are a bridegroom of blood to me. So there is a little bit of ambiguity there. And uh, we also need to recognize that there's a, a high likelihood that there may be some cultural nuances that have been lost to us. So there, there may be something in Sephora's head about her culture or some nuance of Hebrew culture and the rite of circumcision that we, we're just not aware of. We just don't have that information anymore. But presumably, and I sort of always make this assumption, that the, the first readers of the text, so the people that originally received whatever biblical book you're talking about, in this case it would have been the Israelites uh, at the time of the conquest, they would have understood the cultural nuances, not just the commandments, but the cultural nuances of the text and maybe there's something there that we have lost. So that's always a little bit of a problem in biblical studies. Uh, there's, I guess we could say it this way, there's some benefit to being the original recipient in that you would understand the cultural nuances better. Now, there's also a benefit not to being the original recipient because you have the whole rest of the Bible at your disposal, which sheds a whole lot of light on certain passages that the first reader may not have fully understood. So there's a, a benefit to both parties that is perhaps lost to the other. So let's just review here then. Moses had prepared 40 years for ministry, and specifically his ministry was a ministry of deliverance. So if you want to count the time from when he was born, you could even say 80 years. This was like a very significant event that he was about to participate in. We don't want to deify Moses, but he was God's man. He was God's choice instrument that was about to deal with this major situation that involved perhaps up to a couple million people. So it was very, very, very important that he was right with God, he was in obedience to God, and his family was in obedience to God. So it would appear then that in light of his role, notice God didn't deal with this back in Midian, in light of his role and his proximity to Egypt, about to perform these great feats on God's behalf, this is probably why the text appears, or the predicament appears at this point in his spiritual journey. It, it probably is meant to be a reminder to the reader. So you always ask yourself the question, why does, why does this account get included in the Bible at this point? It probably is meant to be a reminder to the reader about how significant Moses' role is about to be. So broadly speaking, 
I'm thinking that's probably how the text is supposed to function, to say, look, he, it underscores the fact that he's about to do something on God's behalf, therefore it is very important that he's right with God. So broadly speaking, I think that's how the text is functioning. But it also uh, helps us to understand something important about the right of circumcision. And don't you think that generations of Jewish men and their wives, reading this centuries later, might have referred to this text as a proof text to say, hey, the whole circumcision thing, that's not like a minor detail. Uh, This is kind of important to God. And remember our forefather Moses, like the guy that led us out of Egypt? Uh, God almost wiped out him or his boy or both of his boys as a result. So uh, just think, I, I like to think about how the text is supposed to function, not just what it says, but how the text is supposed to function in the broader uh, context of Scripture. So to understand this a little bit more, we need to just flip back to Genesis uh, 17. And uh, let's take a look at verses 10 through 14. God is speaking at this point to Abraham. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. He shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be with your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, would you put this in the category of a suggestion or a definitive imperative by God? the latter, right? And we could point to many words in the text, words like shall or everyone, every male, throughout the generations. And then he goes into detail, if they're born in your house, they're circumcised. If they're foreigners, they're circumcised. Like it's very comprehensive. It's not, there's no ambiguity there. Like everybody, and everybody means everybody. There's no exceptions. And I want it done on the eighth day, and the details are there. So we're not dealing with a covenant, or I should say a commandment, that should have been forgotten by someone as significant as Moses. This is not like, if you were to categorize God's commands and say, you know, which ones are absolutely central to the identity of the people, and which ones are more cultural and maybe related more to, you know, a passing issue... This one is like top, top of the heap. So with that in mind, you can understand then uh, that this was very important. Somebody had not been circumcised. Now, we can only guess, but this, might, this uh, response from Zipporah on one or other of her sons probably was due to her revulsion as a Midianite who did not grow up in Israelite culture at the idea of having her sons 
penis cut. And yet, it is her that realizes the gravity of the moment. Notice that? Moses, for some reason, seems obtuse to the threat that lies before him or his sons. And she is the one that realizes the gravity of the moment, and she is the one who acts on it and, in fact, rectifies the situation. So, her declaration then, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, is probably, and again, we can't be definitive on this, probably to be understood as a declaration of her disgust at the act itself. Not necessarily a declaration of anger toward God, because she actually is portrayed as the righteous one who obeys this critical covenant that God had made. But you can kind of understand it, even from modern perspective, if a mother had to perform this act on the fly because someone's life's on the line, this would be a pretty traumatic event. Now, that is one possible interpretation of the text, and I think it's legitimate. There is another possible interpretation of this declaration. So others see this phrase to mean that the blood is a beloved way to have been delivered from the angel of death. So when she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, if we were trying to explain the second interpretation or the way that she's saying it using the second interpretation, that she's somehow foreshadowing the beloved nature of the blood that was spilled as a result of this act that delivered uh, the son from the angel of death. So in that respect, it's more of a theological declaration then than it is an emotional declaration of disgust. So there's kind of two different ways that one could possibly look at that. One of the things that we have to, be, uh, we have to recognize is that based upon this text, we don't actually know why she touches Moses' feet or if it was... Uh, one of her son's feet she t touched. Um, but it, it may have to do with um, another biblical idea. So I just need to take you back uh, to Exodus chapter 3 and uh, look at verse 5. And again, this is just a, like a guess because we don't have any other text telling us this. But you'll notice in verse 5, when God had appeared in all of his holiness and glory to Moses in the burning bush incident, he says, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So I'm not sure that you would want to preach this as the, like the central part of your sermon or your lesson as if it's an actual fact, but it may be that the touching of the foreskin to Moses' feet or potentially to the child's feet has to do with the idea of being made holy, just as God asked Moses to take off his sandals when he was standing before the burning bush. There may be this notion of holiness and um, humility before God being uh, associated with clean feet, symbolically with clean feet. So it, some have suggested that perhaps that's uh, how it is to be in, uh, intended. And just one other interpretive point that you're probably going to want to be aware of, is um, 
In actual fact, the Hebrew word used here for feet can refer to anything below the waist. So it could be the thigh, um, it could be the genitals, it could be the lower leg, it could be the feet, it could be the toes, it could be the bottom of the foot, back of the foot. So we don't actually even know if it was you know, from the ankle down. It, it may, in fact, uh, I'm not sure why this would be. Some, some have even suggested, it kind of sounds gross, a little embarrassing, but that she touched Moses' genitals with the foreskin of the son as a symbolic act of him being a bridegroom of blood. But somewhere in there, there's some symbolism one would think that's intended uh, to remind Moses and remind the people by extension of the holiness of this act or the holiness that this act was associated with. So I, if I was to grade this, um, and I've suggested to you sort of an A, B, C, D grade, I would say that I would, I would feel comfortable giving it um, a, you know, an A to a B, maybe an, an A minus, B plus, something in there. Uh, that it's probably supposed to function. The purpose of the text is to reinforce God's standards, therefore God's holiness and the right of circumcision. Um, With regard to the intention behind the phrase bridegroom of blood, uh, I'd probably want to go with a C on that because it is a... um, just a difficult one to to try to understand. So that's like the 50-50 grade where it it could be like a declaration of her disgust or it could be a theological declaration of blood somehow binding their union as a family under God and tying it in perhaps to some of the later theological ideas of blood associated with purity. And I'm going to go with a D, meaning... uh, I'm just really not sure, and I'd have to do a lot more work on it to know why the feet are being touched. Now, I, say, I give it a D, acknowledging the fact that it probably will forever remain a D, because there really are no other passages that definitively interpret this for us. Now, for it to move up to, let's say, a C or B would require maybe an archaeologist, for instance, digging up something extra-biblical in nature, maybe manuscripts or a cultural document that gives us some sort of insight into that practice, if it was a practice at all, or other circumstances that might have taken place. And maybe that then would sort of turn the light on and in in light of maybe better understanding of the culture would enable us to say, okay, this is actually what is probably intended. But um, I'm giving it a D, not because... uh, you know, there's several passages yet to look at, but because there's, there's nothing else really there to help us with that, okay? So I'll, I'll open it up for comments or questions, and some of you may, may, may have even heard uh, other nuances of this text uh, taught in the past that you'd certainly be welcome to share with the class. So any comments or questions pertaining to Exodus 4? Well, I definitely think there's a, 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 um, 
there definitely is a tie tying in. There's a tying in in the sense that it foreshadows the judgment that God is going to pour out on Egypt. It doesn't necessarily help us understand the nuances of the next passage any better, but it does provide for us at least a contrast between the people that are about to be wiped out because of their sin and Moses who is supposed to represent a holy people. And God shows no discrimination against those who disobey him. You know, he's about to perform an equally heinous act on Moses' offspring. But because Moses appropriately responds then, or at least his wife, appropriately responds to God's commands, it does present him then in the text, in the narrative, as the righteous and legitimate deliverer and presents Pharaoh, who later receives a similar opportunity, a, a second chance. In fact, he gets a lot more time to respond as one who is justly deserving of God's judgment because he thumbs his nose at God. So good, good insight there, comparing and contrasting uh, the Egyptian pharaoh to the, uh, the Israelite ruler or deliverer. Okay, so the next passage we're going to look at is uh, Exodus 9, and we're going to look specifically at verse 12. So Exodus 9, 12. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the class, there are certain themes that are going to come up in passages that are going to spill over into future passages, and the, th the, the fundamental theme here is this idea of the hardening of the heart. And many people wrestle with this hardening of the heart because they want to ask themselves, they, they ask the question, how can Pharaoh be blamed for his uh, actions if God hardened his heart? It almost makes God out to be the uh, perpetrator of evil and the uh, Pharaoh to be sort of the innocent victim who can't help it because God hardens his heart. So in this text, it uh, specifically says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So what is the context? Those of you that have read Exodus, what's the context? Okay, good. So is everybody familiar with this general part of the narrative? Has anybody not studied this before? Okay, so it's, it's the 10 plagues that are being poured out on Egypt. Let's look at them very briefly. We can't read all of them, of course. But if you uh, begin in chapter 7, I want you to just peruse the text just let your eyes drift through the text and look for the phrase hardening of the heart or a hard heart, however it's put. And I want you to notice something very interesting about the language of the text. So in the first plague, what verse does it appear in? Okay, verse... Uh, sorry? 
Okay, so his, yeah, it appears in verse 13, but if you go ahead to verse uh, 20, it says, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now look at the second plague, and you'll see, uh, you'll see it in verse 15. And when Moses saw that there was, a, there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Notice there it says he hardened his heart. And then moving into the third plague, verse uh, 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so that doesn't identify God or Pharaoh specifically as it did in the previous one. And then moving into the fourth plague, where do we find it there? Very last verse. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then moving into the fifth plague, where do we find it? Verse 7. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And then the sixth plague. Can okay, you notice the sixth plague, which is the one we're looking at? The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Let's go to the seventh plague. What do we have there? Near the end, 34. Notice it says, hardened his heart, but notice the phrase before that. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Notice the eighth plague. This is similar to the sixth plague. What verse are we looking at? Verse 20. Same language as the 9-12 text. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then the, uh, the ninth plague, you'll look at verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that's the same as two others. And then look at the final plague. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, verse 10. Now, what, are you no what, what automatically might you notice there? that if you start with plague number one, um, how, many, how many plagues do you, do you have to move through before God is identified as the one hardening the heart? And even then, it's not every one of them. So you have at least five plagues where God is not identified as being the hardener of Pharaoh's heart. But then, having hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, why? Why does he harden his heart? What did we see? Because of what? Because he sinned. So he's sinning, hardening his heart, hardening his heart, not listening, not listening. Then the language shifts, and the majority of the final five, I think maybe four, I think there's four, out of the five, where God is specifically identified as the one who's hardening his heart. Now, can you think of any passage in the New Testament that conceptually, not using this language, but conceptually essentially says something similar? Feeding of the 5,000? 
Okay. And what did you guys conclude about what that said about them or what that tells us about them? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the jury's out. Okay. So the jury's out. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to Romans 1. And uh, again, we don't need to find the same language to find the same basic concepts, which would require repetitious sin, right? So repetitious sin would have to be there. And then some sort of an act of God where he hardens the heart or does something with that that kind of language in it. So let's go to uh, verse 18, and we'll just kind of look at the latter verses of... um, of Romans 1. Uh, by the way, let me just make some, some preliminary comments um, before we look at this passage. The reason why this is an important topic is because it begs the question, who, within who does evil originate? It asks questions like, uh, can Pharaoh be blamed? Can I be blamed if I sin against God? Uh, is there human responsibility when we sin? So am I really responsible for my actions, or am I sort of like a, a pawn, and God sort of shuffles the good people over here and the ones that he has predetermined to be evil over here? Um, it also asks a question, an interesting question, why would God delay deliverance? So like, why, why wouldn't one plague, you ever wondered about that? Like, why wouldn't one plague have sufficed? Why, why not no plagues? Why not take the guy's firstborn, he lets everybody go, and everybody's, you know, time's been saved, and you're on your way. So what does God want to accomplish through the delay? Or what does it say about the character of God or the plan of God and the delay? Now, in order to properly understand the hardening of the heart, you need to understand what the heart is. So the heart, we think of it in the West as like the, uh, our emotions. So I love you with all my heart. That means I have an emotional attraction to you. But... In actual fact, biblical thinking kind of st- doesn't deny that, but it stretches it a little bit. And the human heart is the center of our deliberative capacity. So it involves emotions, but it also involves will, desire. That part of us that deliberates, am I going to go with God on this or do my own thing? Am I going to step out in trust and faith or am I going to be fearful or anxious? So we just need to sort of understand that biblically, the heart is a little more than emotion. You could think of it as our, the center of the, a human being that deliberates, that decides, that contemplates, that chooses to dig in their heels and say, nope, not going anywhere, or, okay, I'm going to go your way, God. So uh, let's look at um, uh, Romans 1, uh, 18. This is probably one of the most telling passages in the Bible when it comes to understanding sin and human nature. And every phrase is powerful. It begins as follows. For the wrath of God, so that's a theme that is found in the plague events because the wrath of God is poured out there, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who, now it tells us something about men, who by what? Their unrighteousness, so it sources the unrighteousness in humanity, not in this context, not in social dysfunction, not in poor upbringing, not in God, in this case, not in Satan, but it tells us something about God's view of humanity who by their unrighteousness, and then this is an extremely important phrase in the Bible, they do what? They suppress. Now, you may have heard this taught that this is the same kind of image suppressing the truth that would come to mind if you were in the water and you were holding someone under hoping they would drown. That's suppressing. You're suppressing someone's life. So you're, you want to murder somebody. You're out in the lake. You're holding them under. You know, their, their life's trickling away. You're, you're pushing it down. That is the kind of notion that is being presented to us in the suppressing of the truth. It's deliberate. It is heinous. It can't be interpreted as mere ignorance or a lack of teaching. It's a deliberate, heinous suppression of truth. Now, from there, God uh, shares with us why this is inexcusable. And the specific... uh, the specific reason why this is inexcusable is because God has revealed certain things to us. So verse 19, for what can be known about God is what? Not complex, not difficult, not profound, not for intellectual giants only, not even for believers only. But this truth that they've suppressed, he says, is plain to them And the reason why it's plain to them is because God has taken initiative to make it plain to them. God has shown it to them. Who's the them? People that suppress the truth. So this is damning. This is like you you can't go to God's divine court and say, I I didn't know enough. Uh, Nobody told me. Uh, It was my mom's fault. She didn't take me to Sunday school. This is not to say that all aspects of God's revelation are known to all men. But the body of evidence that they suppress has been made known to them. So whatever that truth is that if rejected leads to damnation has been made known to all men. That's the idea. It doesn't mean they know every detail of Christian theology or necessarily ever read a Bible. But the truth that one needs to reject in order to be in a damnable state has been made known to everybody. Now, moving on from there, he tells us what that truth is. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived. That's very similar to the word plain. It's clear, 
It's perceivable. It has been perceived. In fact, it's not even that they've, it's there and they haven't perceived it. They actually clearly perceived it. So therefore, no human being can ever say, I was not aware of the divine nature and the eternal power of the creator. They can admit that they've suppressed it, but they can't say, I never thought about it, never been exposed to it, never heard that. No evidence for that. Having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So it's ongoing, it's continuous, it never ends. There's never been a delay. There's never been like a break in that communication. That revelation was available to the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Philistines, the whoever. They all, they all had access to that. In the things that have been made. So this is what we refer to as general revelation in Christian theology, where God reveals these attributes of himself through something that everybody sees, the world. So it doesn't require a high intellect to like understand this stuff, to be aware of the presence of God, at least his eternal power and his divine nature. Because it is like evident and manifest to us in something that every human being perceives, creation. If you can't see it, you can touch it. If you can't touch it, you can hear it. If you can't hear it, you can taste it. So we then have this exposure of God's eternal nature and divine attributes through creation. And then it goes back and says, so they are without excuse. So there's no excuse. For although they knew God, so this is where he ramps it up. He actually just says, you, you, no, you actually did know God. Even if you said you didn't, you actually did. So you knew God. They did not honor him as God, so they didn't worship him. They didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So notice that rejecting God leads to deformities of the mind and deformities of the heart. So both the intellectual processes are reduced and the deliberative capacity of the human being is reduced when God is shoved out of the equation. Now you know why uh, unbelievers say stupid things, act stupidly, and act in a way that doesn't make any sense. Like, can, can be intelligent people in, in, in other respects, but deny the absolute obvious revelation of God and humanity. They're, they're more concerned with the arguments that other people have presented for and against God than they are with just looking around at creation and saying, you know what? Voila, it's obvious. You have a painting, it implies a painter. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's created, it implies a creator. Instead, we, can, we create all these complex arguments that you have to have like eight PhDs to even understand nowadays to try to prove that God doesn't exist. And the text speaks to that. So not only that, but there's some arrogance here, right? So verse 22, claiming to be wise. So those who have rejected this truth go around saying, we're actually the wise ones. God says, oh, in fact, you're fools. 
Then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in the ancient context, the primary way of replacing God was with like over traditional forms of idolatry. And the we- that still takes place in our world. Uh, Western people are a little more sophisticated and subtle in their idols. The most common idol worshipped in the West is self. So I'm, I have the capacity to figure out my origins, my destiny. It's all about me. But there are, there are other uh, substitute idols as well, from materialism to rampant sexuality to whatever it might be. Okay? So he, in this context, he identifies ones that are more relevant to the person in, in um, the Roman era. So in light of all of that, now here's, Rhonda, this is, this is where we come back around. Therefore, so in light of everything, you have to understand everything that just came. So therefore, what does God do? It's interesting. It doesn't say that God just damns them, but God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then you'll notice the same language in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we see even a perversion of the gift of sexuality as a prime expression of self-worship and not God-worship. And then we have verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he lists a whole bunch of expressions of that. So three times in the text, uh, folks, the same concept, I think, is expressed in that people are presented with evidence, reject the evidence willfully, deliberately, and somehow, we don't understand what this fully looks like, but somehow then, even to the unbeliever who would have some it would appear protective hand upon them, given to them by God. God pulls back. Okay, go for it. And then the downward spiral accelerates into the most heinous expressions of godlessness imaginable. So I think we have here, um, if we could just sort of, sketch this out. Uh, God reveals things about his nature and we reject it. But there comes a point, known only to God, where God withdraws the fullness of his presence and it accelerates downward like that. So, As the human hardens his heart 
it reaches a point where God then hardens his heart even further. And it is fundamentally a result of God's, God's judgment upon those who have previously hardened their own hearts, rejected the goodness of God. And then all of a sudden, God is sort of involved, involved in the mix and ramps it up. And again, I, I don't want to necessarily you know, say 100% that's why the, the, the language is patterned as such in the 10 plagues. But the pattern does seem to be there. He hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. Finally, God hardens his heart, God hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. But it is pinned on his sin. It's not pinned on God's sin or the meanness of God or a deficit within God. So coming back then to the, to the text, um, one of the ways that it's been put is as follows. God hardens those who have hardened themselves. And from a New Testament perspective, um, of course, we have background information given to us in Ephesians about the state of man's spirit, um, that humanity's spiritual dimension is dead and needs to be revived in Christ. But this, this really isn't even about that because this, this, isn't, this, this frankly isn't a conversation about Calvinism and Arminianism. This is a conversation about a human being who is alive. Whether or not they've ever read the Bible, heard the Bible, or been convicted by the Spirit or not, being presented with sufficient evidence to be responsible to respond to that evidence. And deep within the human consciousness and mind and the, our fallen nature, there is full responsibility. Like we, there's a, an innate uh, awareness that no one can deny that there is a God. And every human being who is yet without salvation has at some point uh, denied that. And... Um, if you think about it this way, even from like more of a philosophical perspective, uh, let's say an unbeliever looks at this. Like an, it's one thing for a Christian to try to figure, what does this mean? I'm curious, what does this mean? But you know as well as I do that unbelievers will look at this and say, huh, what does that tell you about your God? Now, the implication in statements like that is your God has a deficit. He's not moral, or he's not good, or he's inconsistent. And that's, that's an interesting, that's, it's always interesting when atheists make moral observations. Um, because it begs the question, why are you borrowing our language? Uh, in your system, morality is not an absolute. It, in fact, theoretically doesn't even exist why are you using our language to try to prove your point? You're like dipping into our categories and trying to use them as, as bait to get us angry or to prove your point. And that's, that's not fair and it's not logical. But I would suggest that uh, it actually is a curious evidencing 
of the image of God that that person still bears. And it, it reveals their innate awareness of the divine power and glorious attributes of God. And it belies the fact that they have rejected that. And so, I mean, I've, heard, I've seen atheists in person at debates and then just in general conversation, uh, you know, try to create arguments like, um, uh, well, it's culturally determined. Well, then what right do you have to evaluate the ethics of the Canaanite genocide 3,500 years ago? That's a different culture, different time, different day. Why are you commenting on ancient events that have nothing to do with your culture? It's not even on your continent. So again, an innate awareness of God is built into all human beings and therefore any lack of faith or response to that is a uh, demonstration of sin as it was in Pharaoh's case. So Pharaoh's not this poor little innocent guy that didn't know better. He's a sinner. He's responsible for his response. God gives him an opportunity, another opportunity, another opportunity, another opportunity. And uh, finally, God is actively involved in hardening his heart further, bringing, in a sense, a measure of double damnation upon him. James? Greater responsibility. You do. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, you know, those who have um, received more are responsible for more. One can say. And uh, the preaching of the gospel is um, uh, to the unbeliever is um, it's a du- double-edged sword because. There's now heightened responsibility when even greater specificity has been given to God's revelation of himself than just looking at creation. Now you've received special revelation. By the way, there is an, there is <clears throat> an equivalent idea. This will help you to understand this other concept in the Christian life. So the Christian life, now one who has accepted God, received God, received the gift of salvation... When God's spirit then comes upon us and reveals truth for us and we reject it, that's called the quenching of the spirit. And that's never good. So when we like, quench the spirit, that, that doesn't relate to like, losing salvation, but the quenching of the spirit is, is like the, 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 the equivalent aspect in a believer's life to this going on in an unbeliever's life. So I know truth. Someone preaches it, I, or I'm taught it, or I see it in Scripture, God reveals it to me. And I'm like, no, I, I will not forgive that person, or I will not serve, or I will not be a generous person, or I will not say sorry, or whatever the sin might be, right? That's quenching the Spirit. And that, that's a scary thing, because, uh, you know, God... I think God can even, um, uh, by the way, this, under, this, this uh, I believe, answers the whole blasphemy of the Holy Spirit question. 
Okay? Uh, it doesn't relate to loss of salvation, but if you if the unbeliever rejects God's revelation of himself in creation, there's no like second way to heaven. If the believer says to the spirit, and I, I say this not to the spirit, but to, to put it in colloquial language, screw off Holy Spirit, then there is no other means whereby God reveals himself to the New Testament believer. So one then, by definition, puts themselves in a place of alienation from God speaking into their life because they've blasphemed the only vehicle, where, the only conduit whereby God takes his word under the new covenant and applies it to our lives. So God, God has spoken to us by his son, but the application of that message comes into the life of the New Testament believer through the vehicle, the conduit of the Holy Spirit. So when we speak against, no, it's an unforgivable sin in the sense that as long as the spirit is being blasted and pushed away, there is no means of being forgiven or living a righteous life or a pure life in that moment. Because the, you know, up north there's a highway that runs from eastern Ontario to western Ontario. And you may have heard that the Nipigon Bridge just buckled. So in our country, we literally cannot go from east to west right now. We have to go through the U.S. There's no way to link eastern or western Canada by road. There's one road at that point that goes from Ontario into, I guess, Manitoba. And God, in, under the new covenant, has not provided like a multi, multiple roads through which the word is made fresh and alive in the believer's life. It's one, and that's through the Spirit. You shut the spirit off, say, take a hike, I'm not interested, blaspheme the spirit, if you will. Um, I don't think it necessarily needs to be blasphemous words, but any act of take a hike kind of attitude. There's no second road to take to be made fresh and vibrant in Christ. So, Nancy? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, there's several things that could be commented on. Um, so let's just comment on a few. Um, Buddha. Buddha, the problem with Buddha is he's made in man's image, not God's. He doesn't measure up to the eternal power and divine nature qualifications of the Romans 1 text. He doesn't possess those things. He's made in human likeness. And if you then look at the Krishna gods, the gods of Hinduism, they are made in human likeness or animal likeness even, which is a step down. Um, it's curious. We make our, some of our gods and some of our religions. They don't even bring them up to man's level. We drop them down a few. You know, there's the goat god or the 
snake god or whatever. Um, so you begin to look at the gods of this world and the fundamental flaw in them is that they are, they look a lot like me. They're just me looking back at me. They are capricious in certain situations. They are vengeful. They are not all-knowing. They are uh, seductive at times. Um, they are compassionate but unloving. They, are, there's, there's, they look a lot like me, looking back at me in the mirror. So they, they don't measure up to the two qualities, and these are broad terms, eternal power and divine nature that are identified here. They don't have those qualities in the purest sense. So there's deficits in those gods. They're not sufficient to put on their resume, I am God. They don't have the qualifications for that. Um, now, we, we mustn't... Okay, there's, I, I need to maybe make this comment. This is a theological comment. doesn't relate specifically to the topic at hand, but we mustn't leave here then and say, okay, then... A human being can buy him or herself with no work of the spirit, just sort of figure it all out. And at the end of the day, they're going to stand before God and God's like, you responded well enough to the revelation of yourself uh, or to revelation of myself. And I'm, I'm going to give you a pass. You didn't really need to hear the gospel. The Bible says there's no name under heaven, right? Given among men whereby we must be saved. So what we theoretically must conclude. And this is like filling in the gap between this truth and this truth. There's no name. Everybody's responsible. Theoretically then, if a person responded to God's uh, eternal power and divine nature, then God would reveal the fullness of the gospel to them, sufficient that they might receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's other aspects of biblical thinking that also factor in. When I say theoretically, I say theoretically because in practicality, we have this other big problem. It's called Adam. And because we've inherited the sin nature from Adam, there's, there, in every human being, there's innate pushing away. There's an innate pushing away of God. Okay, so this is where... Now we're sort of getting into what's God-like. But you need to understand that there's actually something built in all of us, a mechanism because of the fall of that, that is actually going to, we're always going to be like the people in Romans 1. Okay? Now, uh, how do we know that? Well, Romans 2, verse 1 says, nobody's without excuse. Go to Romans 3. And... Now it says things like, um, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks, all have turned away, have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then, uh, you know, the famous Romans 3.23, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God, and we are justified by his grace. So there, there is a necessity for God to step our way, but that doesn't, mean that we are innocent because we've all committed the crime. I mean, a rough analogy might be like, let's say there's, I don't know, 25, 30 people here tonight, and like every single one of us stole something today. Like every one of us. We went to, I don't know, the superstore and stole something. 
Every one of us. So if we all stole something, we are what? We are all thieves. Without exception. Like nobody in here is, is not a thief. So that's the portrait of humanity. We're all told don't steal, one might say. Don't steal from the superstore. But we all do. Well, if, I don't know, a judge or magistrate came in here today and said, um, Steve, you know you shouldn't have stolen? Steve's like, ah. Okay, I'm going to go to the super, so I'm going to pay your bill. And, uh, you know, your crime's on me, and you're going to be forgiven. Are you cool with that? Steve's like, yeah, okay. And then I go to the next guy, right? And I move, maybe I select six. Ross is out. Jack's out. Nancy, you're off. You know, so, well, the rest of you can't say, what? Like, I'm innocent here. You know, why, why, didn't, why didn't you pay my... No, no, you are guilty. You are guilty. You knew better. You committed the crime. I don't, I'm not obliged to forgive or pay for all of your sins. And you can't look at me and say, well, what a meanie. No, you're the sinner. Don't point at me. Look at yourself. You're the sinner. You're the thief. And for reasons unknown to us other than grace mercy, love, God is working out some sort of a plan, which you know, a lot of Christians are like, man, I'd really like to know. I'm not sure we have the capacity in this broken body to know, to redeem a people unto himself. But nobody else can say, I mean, look at that. It says they are without excuse. Nobody else can say, the magistrate made me do it. The judge didn't give me another opportunity. You were told not to do it. You did it. You're responsible for you. And if the magistrate, for reasons unknown to us, says, Steve, you're, you're free. Ross, you're free. That's, that's based upon his grace and mercy. So that's my understanding of how it works. Um, I don't understand, and in my humanness, I don't, I don't even feel comfortable with half the stuff I just said. Um, but... That's my best understanding of how it works. And so I just kind of got to get over it and say, okay, well, it seems to be the way it works. It certainly, even if you don't like the New Testament teaching on it, the narrative of the whole Old Testament actually describes that. The Jews are idiots, and God chooses them anyway. And they keep acting like idiots. And... I mean, try being a preacher on Father's Day. Find a guy in the Bible that's a guy that you will preach as a role model of fathering. Dun, 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 yeah. Who do you pick? You've got to pick like a single guy like Daniel didn't even have kids and make him like a metaphorical spiritual father. Because they're all fatally flawed men. What, are you going to pick Solomon, the, the polygamist and womanizer, and just because he's wise? Yeah, he has some good qualities, but... You wouldn't hire him to be the pastor of this church. You know, like they're they're fatally flawed, and uh, um, anyway. So to to the text, then I think the best understanding of this is God hardens those who harden themselves further. He hardens them further after they have hardened themselves and reject His um, good plan. Okay, Jordan.
reason it's the idea of God hardening their heart. Mm. It makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. I think it's because like we've just built up this completely entitled personality and mm. this generation where it's like God's given us these opportunities to turn to him and when he says that's enough, we're just like, Oh well, we deserve more we deserve more opportunities to turn to you. And it's like God has <coughs> given us like he gave it up he gave like five opportunities with the plagues. Yeah. And Pharaoh was like, Nope, no, no. So for us I don't know, it's like a humbling thing as well to just be like, Oh God has shown me I have and obviously with Romans like no man is mm. It is very difficult to interpret uh, scripture without putting yourself into it and seeing yourself or choosing not to see yourself in God or in the biblical characters. And it's very difficult to extricate yourself from like the entanglement of your own worldview, some of which is morally neutral, some of which is probably biblical, and some of which is not. And... Uh, you know, I, I struggle with, um, you know, some of the things I read in the Old Testament, some of which we'll, you know, comment on further. They don't, it doesn't feel right to me. Like, it does not feel right to me that David would have five of Saul's, five or seven of Saul's uh, sons taken and slaughtered on a hill to appease God's wrath. I don't, I don't like that. I just, I don't like it. Like I'm thinking, did someone like insert that? Is that like a, is that in the original? <laughs> uh, I don't like it. It, it. it raises a lot of questions for me. Um, but, you know, unless there's a good reason to suggest that I'm misreading it or someone toss it in there and it's not in the original, by faith, I can't pick and choose what I like, because there's a, there's a greater chance that I'm wrong than God messed up. And that's the understatement of the night, right? So there, it's difficult, even if you have the ability to sort of think in categories. So you're like, I can think logically without emotion, and then I can be strongly emotional and even if you can sort of just look at something and analyze it historically, logically, there's still a lot of emotion that comes up in some of these texts that makes me like not want to preach them or not read them again or react to them. If Sapor is like reacting with disgust to God's right of circumcision, it's kind of like we see us in her. And that some of the things God says is like, oh, I'm not liking that one, God. Um, now, sometimes we do misread the Bible, and sometimes we are dealing with a flawed translation, and sometimes we are misteaching something, and it, we may be seeing something and responding to it with revulsion. It's not actually even there. But um, at times, I think it's just like overcoming, uh, choosing to say, okay, I, my life is short, and in my life, I'm probably not going to figure it all out. I'm going to try hard to figure out as much as I can. Uh, but I'm not going to figure it all out. And um, if on the macro level it makes sense to me, then you know I can I can be okay with 
having several other lesser issues that I still haven't quite figured out yet that don't make a lot of sense. Because up here, yeah, it works, it makes sense. It's livable, God's revealed himself to me. Down here, yeah, I still may have some questions, but I'm not going to let the footnotes of Christian teaching throw me off from the overarching message of the text. Okay, the next passage we're going to look at is um, Exodus 20. And we're going, to fo- we're going to look at the broader context, but we're going to focus in on verses 5 and 6. Another uh, good, good submission. It says, um, You shall not bow down or serve them, so speaking to foreign gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the question that many people wrestle with is based upon an apparent interpretation of the text that goes like this. Daddy sins, so his sons get in trouble for it. His grandsons get in trouble for it. His great-grandsons get in trouble for it. Why is that fair? Now, when I say apparent interpretation, I think the way to respond to this passage, the best way is to understand that's not what it's actually saying. So it's not, that's what it says, how do we explain our way around it? It's, that's not what the text actually says. So we need to look at it a little more carefully. Broadly speaking, this text addresses the manner of forbidden acts of idolatry, which are more general in nature than the first commandment, which came before it. So another way of saying that is uh, this passage is part of the Ten Commandments what we call the Decalogue. That's the name for the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments uh, begin with, you shall have no other God before me. So this is the broad, okay, I'm an exclusive God. I will only uh, allow you to uh, be in relationship with me. I'm not a uh, polygamist God. I'm not going to share you with multiple other gods. This is an exclusive covenant. And then the, uh, we often break these down, but there are, there's actually some logic to the way the commandments build off of each other. This, the next commandment is in many ways a, um, a, a description or an extension of the first. So no other gods before me. And then specifically, you shall not make for yourselves carved images or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is not, you can't do art. You can't create anything that looks like anything. This is about idolatry. This is about idolatry. Think about this. Even, this is also not not saying, you know, you can't have religious art that doesn't uh, communicate certain things about the nature of God. There are some Christians who very conservative. You can't have anything religious. Well, the problem with that is the whole of the tabernacle is filled with objects that were supposed to remind people about something relevant to God. So surely, and that's in the same, you know, by the same writer in the same context. So surely this isn't meant to be understood as you can't create any, 
any object that has a religious connotation to it. He's specifically saying you cannot worship it. So you, they were never called to worship the Ark of the Covenant. They were never called to worship the laver. They were never called to worship the tabernacle itself, right? Uh, these things manifest certain things to them about the holiness of God. And there's lots of studies been done on the tabernacle and all the little nuances of it and the colors and what they all symbolize. But uh, you cannot worship these things. So he goes on then to say, uh, uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them from jealous God, visiting iniquity upon the sons. So this is, um, again, not a ban on religious objects. Tabernacles full of them, but you cannot worship them. So this is like one of the big ten. This is kind of an important one. And it, if a person was an idolater, then... You know, this is like a top-level sin. This is like really bad. So let's, let's begin by just thinking a little bit about jealousy. Um, and here is where some of the comments we made before the break are relevant in that we need to think about our cultural understanding of jealousy. So I'll give you an example. Now, my, my example is from a television show called Dr. Phil. Now, I assure you that I do not watch the show, okay? <laughs> I've never watched his show. However, uh, probably a week ago, I was flipping through the channels, and I caught about like 20 seconds of it. And um, it was very st- straightforward. He's, I see a woman sitting there and a guy sitting there, Hispanic, probably some relatives of Dave's. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> They, <laughs> sorry, Jorge, <laughs> couldn't have been Venezuelan. So um, they were sitting there, and uh, the one, uh, the girl's basically saying, he's texting me all the time. He, he wants me back. He's texting me all the time, and it's driving me nuts. And he's like, well, you know, to the effect of, you're my wife, and I'm sorry I shouldn't be doing that. And Dr. Phil's, the only part I really heard, I don't want to put words in his mouth, basically is lecture, lecturing the guy it looked like for, wanting to know his wife's business and then I changed the channel. And I'm like like really? Like we're in a culture now where this professional counselor is telling a husband who's suspicious that his wife might be having an affair, you're a bad boy. You have no business, no right to ask your wife where she's been, who she's been with. Like really that's out of bounds? Well apparently it is in our culture. And I've heard similar kinds of things where the basic idea is a man and a woman choose to get married. It's just a partnership. Um, They both agree to come in. At any given time, they can leave. Nobody holds any sway over the other. There's no ownership either way. There's no real obligation either way. And, you know, if a person ever pushes it too far, well, you're, you're just a jealous, and the language is you're like a controlling husband or a controlling wife. Really? Uh, that's not my worldview. Okay, my worldview is I have a right to know where my wife is at any given time. If I so chose, she has a right to know where I am. Um, if she wants to know who I'm texting or I want to know who she's texting, uh, no counselor is going to tell me that I don't have a right to do that. Uh, we're a couple. We're in a covenant relationship. The two shall become one flesh. It's not a business partnership. It's a marriage. And 
I offer body, soul, mind, and spirit to her. She offers body, soul, mind, and spirit to me. And so if anybody else intrudes in my marriage, am I going to be jealous? Yeah. Am I going to feel bad about being jealous? No. Is jealousy an appropriate expression of breach of covenant? Yes. But not in our culture. So in our culture, broadly speaking, jealousy is considered inappropriate in a covenant-like marriage. It's like a sign of being like immature or a sign of being um, a control freak. It's like a breach of the boundaries. And again, I'm speaking in generalities, but I think this is why increasingly you have awkwardness associated with any declaration that God is a jealous God. It's like, well, then he's, he's a wimp or he's, you know, he has a mental problem or he's a control freak or he's not trust, trusting or whatever it might be. And by the way, here's a little proverbial tip for you when it comes to trust. I've, I, tell my, I tell my children, I have told my children this several times. I say to them, you know, you might ask your kid to do something or where were you or, you know, I want access to your tablet or I think I have a right to check your phone when I want. Now, not that my kids have ever said this to me, but I want to head them off at the pass mentally if they were to say, well, that means you don't trust me, right? You might hear that. Or a spouse might say, if you're probably, you don't trust me. My response is, no, I trust you. I just don't trust your human nature because that's the way I view myself. Do I trust me? Yeah. Do I trust my human nature? No, I don't trust my own. So that's why I need accountability structures. That's why I need an authority that goes beyond mine. But people often play the, well, you don't trust me card. It's not about not trusting you. This is not an, an attack to your personhood. But I don't trust my human nature. And if you trust your own, you're foolish. Because it seems to me that great apostles like Paul didn't seem to trust their own when he made declarations about not doing what he thought he should do and whatnot. Okay, so all of that then is to comment on the fact that in biblical thinking, God's jealousy is an, an, uh, an appropriate expression of his love as a member of a covenant. So we need to reclaim this idea, not that jealousy equals love, but jealousy is one expression of true love and that one would want to naturally fight for a covenant that they've entered into. And there are very few true covenants in this world. Um, one of them, though, is marriage, and it's, I think Malachi 3 identifies it as such. So um, God, then, we need to understand just to set us up for, for why he, he's kind of coming down hard here, is seeking to guard a covenant. Now, the nature of the old covenant is communal. And it is ethnic. And it is God and Israel. That's different than the new covenant in a certain sense. That the, the old covenant was given to Abraham and his descendants. So it's an, it's an ethnocentric covenant. So that's why you have generations being talked about there. Because they participate, the generations participate in the covenant of 
uh, under the Old Covenant. So this teaching, by the way, e- even if it did mean, okay, the Old Testament believer screws up, the son gets the brunt of it, the grandson, it wouldn't apply to the New Covenant because the New Covenant is not ethnocentric. Uh, you know, any generation can, every generation in a sense has to enter into the covenant in a fresh way. So having said that, uh, let's look at this phraseology of the text. Visiting, it's a curious word, the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But notice the phrase that is often skimmed over that comes next. Of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. Now, by the way, three to four generations is not a literal number, but according to one commentator I read, is a Semitic expression for uh, the continuity of sin. Meaning that it's not so much like of a mathematical thing. Okay, you get three, three or four, the fifths, you know, they're out from under it. But it's, it's meant to communicate that sin can have an effect on, a continual effect on multiple generations to come. And because the, the text, first of all, cannot be read, the text cannot be read as this. Subsequent generations get punished for the the current generation. I'll tell you why that cannot be the correct interpretation of the text. Deuteronomy 24. Keep in mind, Deuteronomy 24 is not different culture, different time, different language, different context. Maybe Maybe one writer didn't read the previous. This is all still in the Torah. And in Deuteronomy 24... Verse 16, as part of God's law, it says, Fathers should not be put to death because of their children, nor should children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So we, it can't be. And Moses is writing away. He's writing Exodus 20. He's starting to get tired. His mind's starting to wander. And he writes something totally contradictory in Deuteronomy or even if Joshua finished Deuteronomy, that somehow he had a different take on it. That would do violence, of course, to the accuracy of Scripture. But visiting, visiting is more likely to be understood as effect. Affecting. It's visiting in the sense that it's influencing, it's affecting. So when you have a visitor in your house, unless you're unaware of the visitor, that visitor is going to have an effect on you. That visitor is going to somehow influence you. So I think it's the same thing here. That the sins of the fathers are going to have an effect. Potentially a continual effect. Generation after generation after generation. So it's not meant to be a curse. Or a prophecy. Like an ironclad prophecy. Like you're damned because your dad did ABC and he shouldn't have. But it's acknowledging the fact that if the father's a despot, that's going to affect the next generation. And in fact, he may produce despots. And then that's going to affect the next generation. And he may, affect, he may produce despots. But that doesn't mean that a person can't break the cycle or uh, 
do something different. And the manifestation, how do you know if the next generation's a despot or despotic people? They hate God. That's what the text says in verse 5. I think it's verse 5. They hate God too. Now, the word hate then denotes the kind of people they become. And it is for that hate that they are judged individually by God. David, did you have a question or a comment? Today, I wasn't reading something from one pastor. He said mm, somebody studied uh, his uh, genealogy. Yep, genealogical family tree, yeah. Yes. So they discovered before in his family there are a lot of Christian people yeah. who pray for the next generation. Yeah. So he explained this way why through the all this uh, I don't know how many years. Yeah. Generation that generation of Christian love the Lord. Uh-huh. And explain why he loved the Lord in this way. But that doesn't mean if you coming from a family who are not Christian, mm-hmm. you are going to be sinner for right. you and your you can break this chain oh, yeah. right now yeah. to accept the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I don't believe in generational curses. I don't believe in generational guarantees either. Uh I you know, you have some people that are they sound more like they're into voodoo than Christianity, where they're running around thinking, you know. I mean, I had a guy in this church a long time ago tell me, uh, you know, the reason why he's involved in his sin is because, you know, his, his dad was, and there's like a generational curse. I don't see that in Scripture. You may have learned some bad things from your dad. There may have been some early imprinting that took place, but I'm not. Uh, I mean, I, I love my father, but my father's not a believer in, my, in the biblical sense of the word nor was my grandfather, nor was my great-grandfather. And I happen to know who my, great, great, or my, my uh, great-grandfather was, and he wasn't a Christian either. I am. I don't feel... In fact, on the other side of the family, they were Mormons and planted churches around Chatham and Ridgetown. Uh, I'm not a Mormon. And I don't feel in any way, shape, or form cursed. Or I, don't even, I don't even think in categories of being disadvantaged. Uh, you know, everybody's story is unique. If you have a Christian parent who has influenced you, as I do, or you have two Christian parents who've influenced you, or both your parents aren't Christians, uh, you are you, and you are responsible for you. And I don't run around with like generational curses hanging over my head. However, I do recognize that in the sovereign plan of God, God's a practical God. And when God created me, he blended soul and spirit and body and plunked me in a particular family. And because of that family, I'm influenced with all the pluses and all the minuses. of it. Just like everybody has pluses and minuses in their family. And I benefit from the pluses, and I suffer from the minuses, just like we all do. But by God's grace, um, when I was born, at the time my parents were attending a Christian church, and I was exposed to the gospel young. And so, you know, set aside our conversation with the sovereignty of God for a moment, 
practically speaking, that upped my chances of becoming a Christian vis-a-vis someone who didn't go to church and whose parents aren't believers. Uh, Just from a practical perspective, right? That's why a large section of the church today are Christians because they have parents or a parent or maybe a grandparent that was Christian. And there's a proverbial thing to this, right? You know, the whole, we all know the train up a child and the way he should go. That's not a promise. A proverb isn't by definition a promise. But train up a child and the way he should go and when he's old he will not depart. This is a general pithy statement that captures a a basic truth that, uh, you know, the, the, the better Christian I am, the more determined I am in my faith, the more passionate and real and authentic I'm increasing the likelihood from a human perspective that my children will follow the Lord. And by extension, their children. My mother uh, was saved. My mom has uh, birthed six children, all of whom are still alive. And um, she was saved in between the first and the second. So I'm the second, so she was saved when I was born. But my sister, she was not a believer when she had my sister. My parents had my sister. Um, So from myself downward, my mom said every time she was pregnant, she always prayed, do not bring this child into the world, Lord, unless it is in your plan to save him or her. Now, um, you know, the Lord, the Lord is sovereign. So um, I don't know where my siblings will be at at the moment of their death. Right now, that prayer has not been fully met. So not all my siblings know the Lord. So my, just because you pray the prayer doesn't mean you're guaranteed that God's going to you know, do what God's going to do. I have five children. I'm fully aware of the fact that I can do my absolute best. And, and not that I have, but let's just say theoretically I do my absolute best as a Christian parent. I have no guarantees my children are going to grow up to love the Lord for the rest of their lives. I'm not naive to that. I've been doing ministry long enough that I know that uh, I'm just... Um, you know, uh, a tool that God uses and a significant tool when it comes to raising my own children, but there's factors beyond my control. Uh, however, I, I raise my children in faith and wisdom, not, as, as, not assuming, but anticipating that they will all follow the Lord all the days of their life. So I don't presume upon God, but I anticipate, I hope, I pray, Susie and I pray together every night. Well, I would say five nights out of seven because sometimes one of us falls asleep first, but five nights out of seven uh, in a given week, I would say we pray together. And I would say like 99% of the time, one or both of us are praying among other things for our children. We may be praying specifically for issues we know they're struggling with, or we may just be praying more generically that, you know, the Lord would work in their lives or whatever else. And um, that's our hope. And for me, I can never afford to fall asleep at the wheel and just sort of ride it out. Well, I went to a Christian school, that's enough. Or they're in a good church, that's enough. Or they got some Christian friends or they're in youth group. No, I don't. Those are all just little bonuses. I'm very much concerned about the formation of the soul and the character and, you know, imparting my strengths in them and seeing Susie impart their strengths and being open and honest with them about our own 
weaknesses and what we've learned, right? So I, I, I have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, but I'm also, I'm probably the most deliberate parent you'll ever find. I may not necessarily come across that way because I'm not legalistic with my kids. And I give them a lot of freedoms for philosophical reasons. But I, I am very conscious of the spiritual identities of my children. My eyes are like wide open. And I'm doing everything in my power to see them grow to love the Lord. Fully recognizing that when I'm on my deathbed, let's say I make it to 80, I may have five atheists for children. How do I know? I'm not God. And I can't manipulate them into uh, persevering faith. So, nor is, to use you know, children as an example here, nor is um, Simon going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for my actions. You know, he'll stand for his own. So the text, to clarify, visiting, I think, equals effect. The effect being hatred, which is the opposite of what? Love, which then would arouse what in God? Jealousy. So I'm going to go with like a, a, an A on that one. I would feel quite comfortable saying definitively that's what the text means. It does not mean that one generation is cursed from the last, nor does it mean that one generation is um, uh, responsible for the sins of the previous generation. Properly understood. Okay. Um, we don't have that much time, but let me just broach this subject. Um, Numbers 31.18. This is a really tough one. Um, so the, the Jews go out to war, and uh, they're, they're, they're killing off the Canaanites. And uh, specifically, uh, I think, I'll have to reread the text. I think it's the Moabites. And... Um, it says, but all the young girls who have not known man by lying with them, by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Anybody find that remotely problematic? Uh, Numbers thirty-one eighteen. Right. So, you know, you go out to war, kill everybody off. You can keep the virgins for yourselves. How convenient. This is one of those rare times when I wish God allowed for female pastors because I'd rather a female be up here right now teaching this than... <laughs> okay, so just, you know, don't think of me in terms of uh, the gender matter. But, okay, let's make some acknowledgements. It's a shocking text. Agreed? Um, if you read the context of this text, it does help somewhat in that if you go back to verse 13, um, yeah, so they're on the plains of Moab near Jericho. Moaz and Eleazar and the, pr the priests and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. So they come back from war, and he's basically, well, how did it go? Oh, we, uh, you know, we called off all the soldiers. Uh, 
that's it. Yeah, that's it. So Moses was angry with them, uh, with the officers of the army and commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who have come from service in the war. In fact, Moses says to them, have you let all the women live? Now, what I would just suggest there is Moses is as shocked that they didn't kill everybody as we are that they did or they were told to, which is interesting. Like He's like surprised. Are you kidding me? Which is interesting. We're like, whoa, this is kind of uncomfortable. I hope my you know, friend that I'm trying to win to Christ doesn't read this in the scripture. Uh, let's get him to accept Jesus, and then we'll slowly introduce him to this. But... Um, uh, he, he does seem shocked that they didn't do it. It says, behold, these on Balaam's advice, who's referring back to like uh, a time where Balaam, the prophet, tried to influence Israel into Baal worship, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So he's referring to a very specific historical event. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So notice he's tying in these specific people, to, not to some generic while they're godless, to a specific act of transgression that they had participated in. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him, so any of the non-virgins, but all the young girls who have not known any man by lying with them, keep alive for yourselves. Okay, and then there's the whole purity commandments after that. So again, it's important to note that Moses is shocked the other way around, and it's very clear, he makes it very clear, whether he wants to kill some or all, that he sees them as being worthy of death because of this historic incident of worshiping Baal. Now, um, one thing that we need to understand, or maybe just remind, I think most of us understand this, but we need to remind ourselves of, is Israel's not the church and the church is not Israel. So, uh, the church in this dispensation is not God's agent for uh, you know, killing people, exercising capital punishment. Um, it's not our job. Um, as much as we may be furious at times as individuals, it's, it's not our job to bomb abortion clinics. It's not our job to um, you know, massacre pagan armies. It's, it's not our job because we're not Israel. But Israel was God's agent of death and destruction in that dispensation, in that era. They were commissioned directly by God to not only speak the truth, but swing the sword when necessary. So we need to understand then that damnation is, uh, we often speak of damnation in the New Covenant because we think in more spiritual terms. We know that God, I think we all know, that God will one day judge in the most heinous of ways unbelievers by consigning them to a lake of fire. Uh, And we don't like that, but we understand that to be true. Under the old covenant, where blessings were more tangible, so were curses. And one of the curses for uh, transgressing God's commands was death. And the agents, keep this word in mind, the agents that God used to bring that about was his holy nation, Israel. So Moses understood that, that they were God's agents of judgment. And so the reason why the women are wiped out 
is likely because they either participated in the sexual, sexually deviant cult that the Moabites were part of, or even if every single one without exception, uh, with a few exceptions, um, did, it would have been impossible for them to determine who did and who didn't. So this is why all of the married women, gone. They are destroyed, as odd as that is for us because we think, you know, protecting women and children in war. In their mindset, these women had participated in, in fact, the text is kind of strong on that. Why let the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. So Moses and the Old Testament people saw themselves as God's sword bearers to bring down judgment upon those who were idolatrous. Now, the more difficult thing for us, and I'll just, I'll just tell you what I think the text is saying, even though, again, I'm not saying I like it, is the destruction of the male children. The reason for this is that in biblical thinking, the male represented the nation. The women did not. Uh, the, the males represented the nation, the ethics of the nation. They bore the sin nature forward into the next generation. And also in a culture largely um, uh, hemmed in by concepts of revenge, if you let them live, they would form the nation again and come back and it's problem all over again. So this would be in the mind of Moses why it would be uh, irresponsible to let the... Uh, males live. So why are the virgin women spared? Well, one might immediately think, oh, because they're the spoils of war. But I think, you know, while that may be partially true, I think there's a few other things that one needs to consider. Best as we can tell, the, the um, Midianite or the Moabite cult at the time did have sexual deviancy in it. And um, the very fact that they were virgins uh, would imply that they had not participated at least in the full, to the fullest extent, in that idolatrous religion. So there is a sense of uh, maybe not total innocence, they're still sinners as we all are, but there's a sense in which they hadn't given expression to their sin by participating in the sexual deviancy of that so cult. How would they know that they're a virgin? They say, hey, are you a virgin? You're not even from that Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's several reasons. I mean, um, the way they were dressed, or the, the way they were dressed and carried themselves in different cultures would have tipped off whether you're a virgin woman or not. Now, could someone run and hide? Yes. Uh, their age, you know, they're, they were married young. So if they're really young, they're clearly not married women. So we're not talking about a 25-year-old woman walking up and you're like, I wonder if she is or isn't she. We're probably talking more like 10, 12, 13-year-olds and everybody from there up has gone. So if, and we're just guessing here, but it has to be the youngest of the young and they would have to be, they would in all likelihood be somehow identified by their dress in their culture, which the Israelites would have been somewhat familiar with it's in geographical proximity to their own, by what they're wearing. So we're not looking for wedding bands. And we're not talking about sorting through, you know, 20, 30-year-old women and trying to make a guess at it. Um, the other thing would be that, so they would not have participated in the cult, potentially. Secondly, um, 
they would want to make sure that they weren't inadvertently pregnant with Midianite children, and therefore continuing the line that way. Um, another thing, and, and I don't know, this sounds convenient. Um, this sounds more like trying to explain your way around a difficult text. So I say this carefully, but it, it may have been true. It may have been, in some senses, an extension of justice because uh, young women in that culture, if they were not taken into captivity, would have probably died because they would not have anyone to provide for them. They would have been picked up by their bands of marauders, or they wouldn't have had the ability to rebuild cities and whatnot. So one could argue that it was a small sign of justice by taking them in to another nation, a sister nation. And then finally, they could, they had the potential to function as wives or as slave women within Jewish society. So I just want to make a, I'm just going to run through this real quick, if you don't mind. If you have to get going, that's fine. We're a few minutes over time. But just some other considerations. It does offend our modern values and is an emotional issue. Okay, we just need to recognize it. Uh, God does appear to desire the repentance of the godless. So we have Jonah going out to Nineveh. We have God giving Sodom and Gomorrah another chance, another chance, another chance, reducing the numbers of people that are righteous. So there does seem to be a heart that God has for the unrighteous. It's not just damn them all, you know, wipe them all out. There's opportunities, as there was for Pharaoh. They evidently not taken God up on that. Um, when one questions this or uses this text as an, a, a way to malign the character and morality of God, it also begs a question we asked earlier. Well, if you don't Assume at the beginning that there is a moral God. What right do you have to judge the morality or lack thereof of the act? The overarching question then, is God moral, is in some ways a question that reveals the arrogance of the questioner's heart. Um, Another point to be made would be that judgment would have come sooner or later, and one could argue that there was a greater chance for these women to follow the true God if they were taken in battle and therefore exposed for the rest of their lives to the true God. And I I feel uncomfortable saying this, but I'll just say it as well, and this probably doesn't work so well for people of of no faith, but some have even suggested who believe in the age of accountability that it was somewhat of an act of grace to wipe out the children when they were young because they would have then gone to heaven, whereas if they lived into adulthood and adopted the ways of the people that they were part of, they would have been in deeper trouble. We cannot declare this to be murder because God commanded it. Um, And also we need to take into consideration the laws pertaining to clean things and unclean. So we got these laws in the Old Covenant about certain kinds of clothing can't be mixed because one symbolizes maybe a pure uh, uh, textile, one symbolizes an impure textile, so you can't mix them together. And More broadly speaking, we have this notion throughout the Old Covenant that the people of God cannot mix with those who worship other gods. So to to bring into the nation people who clearly represent the impurity of other nations just wouldn't have worked, especially with regard to the males being the ones who represented these things uh, from God. And fortunately, of course, God seems to throughout scripture be moving us through what we could call a redemptive hermeneutic in that God is working within culture where this kind of stuff took place. He 
he's allowing it, he's permitting it, he's even commanding it at times. Fortunately, we are not in that dispensation anymore, so we don't do this kind of thing. We're not exposed to this kind of thing. We're simply trying to understand what was taking place back then. Uh, Finally, I'll just reference, if you have an interest in this broader question of why God allowed various Canaanite groups to be exterminated, the Canaanite genocide, and you're wrestling with, well, why did Pharaoh get in trouble for trying to wipe out Moses and all the boys born then, but they get to wipe out, you know, Moabite boys now, and it seems like they're guilty of the same thing. There's a book um, written by four scholars, and I think it's called Four Views on the Canaanite Genocide. You can just Google it. And it does a good job of outlining the four major responses to this broader question, and then it gives each other writer an opportunity to respond to what the other person has said before they present their own chapter. So if you're interested in this broader question, which is an interesting subject in Scripture, to say the least, uh, I would certainly recommend that book to you. Okay? So uh, just any quick comments. I know this is the kind of thing, like, it would be nice to have more time on it, but any comments or questions just before we, we wrap up on this particular passage? Well, they would either they, they could so they could either be brought in as female slaves, or they could be uh, integrated into the culture as wives. Well, it would only be those two things. Probably, well, both options would be valid. Yeah. Well, in the case of multiple wives, concubines, but they could also become their wives. Okay, well, uh, I hope you sleep well tonight, <laughs> even though we've looked at some disturbing passages. But um, yeah, let's, uh, let's plan a meeting again next week, and we'll, we'll move forward from there. Have a good evening. Thanks for coming.